This morning I'm going to teach you guys a little Greek. The Greek Christians used to say something right around Easter that there was a greeting and a response to the greeting. Does anybody know what it is? Okay. So what they would say when they'd come up to someone, they would say, Christos anesti. So say, Christos anesti. That's Christ is risen. And then the person would say in return, Alethos anesti. So Alethos anesti means he is risen indeed, indeed he is risen. So I'm going to say, Christos, what is happening? So I'm going to say Christos Anesti, and I want you guys all to say Alithos Anesti. Okay, you ready? Christos Anesti. Right, so we are saying he is risen indeed. Now, um, I was laying in bed last night, and I'm like, I totally forgot to get a mug to give away. And I was so bummed because I love to give away mugs. And then this lovely young woman <clears throat> brought a mug. She's over there. You can wait. She's like, I have this mug to give away, and this mug makes me think of, like, bling, because it's golden, all right? So somebody here likes to have their bling, likes to have their, their bling, and it says, rise and shine, and it's happy, happy, happy. So which one of you is like, you go to the jewelry parties, you like your bling, you like to go by the jewelry counter, your hand went up so fast, you're like, I need my jewelry, so this one just makes me think of that because it's got the gold and it's so happy. So Rise and thank shine. You. Oh, so darling. Yay. And thank you to you. All right. I love this. So cute. So over the last couple months, we've been learning about storms, right? We learned about Peter's storm after following obedience. We learned about Paul's storm when his boat broke apart. Next month, we're going to be learning about Jonah, who came into a storm because he was disobedient. Some of us know what that feels like. Um, there's many different kinds of storms that we're going to face in life. Uh, waves can come when we obey God's call. When we disobey God's call, they can just come out of the blue. But some of the waves we face don't come from dark storms. Uh, waves can be a trial, but they can also be an adventure, right? Has anyone heard of the Mavericks surfing competition? So this guy probably traveled a long way just to get on that giant wave. Now to me, my head, oh, not that one yet. Go back. To me, like my head would be going underwater right there, and that would be horrible. But to him, that's his adventure. So some waves come from like this amazing adventure. And then the next picture is kind of like when your adventure catches you off guard and God's like, I'm sending you an adventure. And that's what it feels like. You know, your feet are like, what? Like that. Or you think you got it and then you're like, I don't got it. And you know, you're about to go down. Um, sometimes storms can come in like hurricane type blessings, right? You have toddlers, they're like little mini tornadoes <laughs> all over the house. Um, sometimes blessings can feel like a storm, but you're not really allowed to say that because then you feel guilty and people look at you weird because you're so blessed, but it feels like a storm, right? First year of marriage, totally awesome. But it's a bit of an adjustment. 
it can feel a bit stormy. All of a sudden, there's like pee in the bathroom where there's not supposed to be pee in the bathroom. And you're like, what is this male thing happening here? It can be, it can be challenging. It can be an adjustment, right? Your first year of college can be a huge adjustment. I went, I traveled away to college and I had never seen pot before and every dorm room had a bong in it. I had never seen a bong before, I didn't know what it was, but everyone had one. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. Um, that's a whole nother story where that ended up going, but um, we won't go there today. Uh, an adjustment, your first newborn baby, you're like, seriously, you're letting me leave with this baby. Like, how am I supposed to keep this thing alive? Like, it's scary, right? Can the nurse staff come with me home just for like the first month? Because it's very intimidating to leave and then be expected to keep this baby alive. So it's this huge blessing, but it also can feel stormy. Maybe when you buy your new home, this last, the, the last time we moved, Bought this beautiful home in Livermore, had enough space for me to have a room for a class, just a devoted classroom, which was amazing, but it was super stressful. Moving and packing and unpacking. And you know that box, that, that last box that just gets everything that didn't have a box, that you just want to be done and you throw it all in there? Nobody wants to unpack that box. So that box like stays for a long time because it's like three junk drawers and just everything that was in the corners of the rooms. It can be stressful. You have boxes that stay unpacked for like four years, and you're like, maybe we should just throw those out because we haven't unpacked them. God's blessings can sometimes feel stressful. Uh, last fall, my husband earned a trip to Maui with his company. Now, these trips that his company does when you get to a certain number of being on the top teams are incredible. They're trips we would never be able to afford they're at like four seasons, five star, lots of food, lots of um, swimming and activities. And um, we're like, how do you people vacation here? <laughs> because it's crazy. But they send us on these great tropical trips. So this last year was Maui. And the founder of the company, his wife, I just have found favor with her. She's Jewish. She knows I'm Christian. But we... Uh, talk a lot, very openly with each other. And she found out that we were going to be bringing a, our six-week-old adopted daughter with us on this trip. And so she WhatsApped me, which I just have that for her. I don't even know what it is, but it's the way she can text me. So she WhatsApped me, and she said, when you guys planning on leaving, there's still room on our plane. You guys should come with us. And I'm like, well, duh, it's Hawaiian Airlines. I mean, hello, of course there's room on your plane, you know. Well, maybe we'll get on the same flight. So I brought it up to Darren, and his face was like, like that emoji with the big eyes. And he goes, Kim, this is like a private jet. He goes, this is like the Kardashians. And he insists, he did not say Kardashians, but he totally said Kardashians. This is like the Kardashians, like a private jet. Now, sorry for the sound, guys. So this sounds super exciting, right? A private jet to Maui? I mean, that sounds amazing. Um, it's an adventure of a lifetime. I don't want to put my Bible on the ground. It's an adventure of a lifetime, right? Unless <clears throat> you're afraid of small planes. And sometimes you're afraid of flying in general, OK? Um, I mean, seriously? 
seriously, a small planes fall from the sky like every other day, right? It's like on the news, this goes down in a field, this one goes down on a house. It's like they just fall from the sky, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and somebody said to me, why, you know, what is there, you, it's not like you'd feel it when you crashed. And I'm like, no, it's like the 40,000 feet of screaming and knowing I'm going to crash and holding on for dear life and, you know, the breaking apart of the plane. That part is what scares me. So to me, that huge blessing, and then my husband was pumped because my dear husband was taking like flying lessons before we met and had dreams of flying his family all over the place in a small plane. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that will not happen. I'm sorry. So... Um, so he was like stoked, and so I knew I was just going to hit that fear. And there's, I just heard this song the other day on Caleb, and it talked about there's a place where your fear meets, meets like your knowledge of God or what you know about God. And that's exactly what had to happen. I had to go, I'm just not, I can't be afraid of this. We're going to do it. So my, our verse for this morning reminds us of the reality that in the midst of the storms of life, no matter if they're coming from blessings or if they're coming from trials, we have an anchor, and it keeps us from drifting too far. It keeps us from getting lost. It keeps us tethered, even in the hardest, scariest, tumultuous times. And that anchor is hope. Hope. Now, you've probably seen this verse on keychains or Bible covers or that fancy lettering that some of you people do that if I try it, it looks ridiculous, but it's all pretty, right? That fancy swoopy stuff. Um, And you've probably read this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. But what exactly is the hope that's being talked about here? What is this hope? What is this hope? And doesn't it sound like amazing? This hope that's being talked about anchors my soul. My soul that is too often weary, frantic, doubtful, anxious, chaotic, insecure, worried, hectic, confused. Often all this on a good day, right? So one minute like full of faith and then the next minute like, but what if? What if? This passage tells me there's an anchor to still my soul, to keep it steady no matter what I face, and to weigh it down when I just want to take flight in fear. Your soul is defined as your mind, will, and emotions. It's just a separate entity from your body, from the tabernacle or the tent that we're in, right? It's kind of what people see as you, everything that makes up you. Your life, your feelings, your thoughts, your actions. And my thoughts and feelings can be all over the place, Um, especially when things get hard. They can be all over the place. And I need an anchor for my soul to keep me grounded, to keep me centered. So what is the hope that anchors our souls that the writer is talking about? They, they don't really know who the writer is. Some think it's Paul, but the writing style is so different that they think it was someone else writing that was trying to sound like Paul. Um, they're not really sure. But this morning, we're going to dig into the text and learn about hope, this particular hope, what it means for us and what it means that it's anchored behind the curtain or behind the veil, which is the second half of verse 19. <coughs> 
So the writer of Hebrews was most likely writing to some sort of house church. They don't know if it was in Palestine or in Rome, um, but he was writing to a house church. There were probably many scattered around. There were probably about 15 to 20 people. Now, the church used to be bigger, but it was shrinking. Um, people have been leaving because the, the, the culture around the church had become hostile to Christianity. And they were paying the price. They were, fa- they were facing persecution. So some of them had lost property. They were being publicly ridiculed. Some of them had gone to prison, all because of their faith. They were in a constant state of defending their faith and sustaining their beliefs in a social climate hostile to their presence. Always defending, always trying to sustain what they believed. And I think all of you know what that feels like, some of you more than others. For some of you, it's like your own family. You feel like this Easter, if you, you, you might have a family that doesn't like love the Lord, but they still get together for Easter and you go and there you have to defend your faith again. Some of you, it's at work or at school, um, especially here in California, it's a hostile climate, right? My husband and I went to Double Barrel for um, Valentine's Day, and we were seated with another couple. They have couches in the back. And the, what do you do? What do you do? I'm a pastor. I'm an atheist. And then the next hour was this man and his wife arguing with my husband and I over how we could possibly believe what we believe or possibly teach our children what we believe. Like the wife was like, you mean to tell, you, you don't actually teach your kids like God, like there's a God that created things, right? I'm like, yes, I do actually believe that. And the guy knew scripture. What about an exodus when blah, blah, blah? And we finally had to go, you know what? This is Valentine's Day, and we're just going to have this meal together. Check, please. You know, I like went and found our server. I'm like, can you just bring our check? Because this is all weird. Um, We were trying at first to like share with them, and it just wasn't happening. Hostile. Totally hostile. And then the lady wants to start talking about internet security, and my husband, that's what he's been doing for years and years and years and years and years, and we go to Maui for it, and she's like arguing with him, and then about football, which he's big into football, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) It's Valentine's Day. (laughs) So anyhow, hostile, right? That just rabbit trail right there. So... In Russia... A law was passed that requires any sharing of your Christian faith, even in a social sort of one-on-one sort of thing. It has to be pre-authorized. If you want to email a friend and invite them to church, it has to be pre-authorized. If you have a Bible study in your home, there cannot be unbelievers present. That's a hostile culture, right? In the U.S., a woman working for a large company in Illinois was fired for violating the store's harassment policy because she would share her faith just casually with the people around her. And she said she would even say, stop me if this makes you uncomfortable. And it never did. They were fine. But she was fired for harassing them, right? So it makes it seem safer just to be quiet, just to not share it. My faith with the Lord is personal. It's totally fine to be personal. It's just me and him. But that's not what we're called to be, to, you know, hide it under a bush, oh no, type thing. We don't do that, right? 
so you don't rock the boat. And these believers, they were kind of fighting it easier just to be quiet, to not say anything, to not be obvious in their faith. And if you stop defending your faith, it can make it harder to sustain your faith, to keep it, on, to keep it hot and ready and passionate, right? This church was in crisis. They were losing confidence in their convictions and what they believed, and they were losing confidence in their salvation in Christ. They were losing hope. And the writer of Hebrews sent them this letter to address it. He reminds the church that Christians should be prepared to pay the cost of discipleship, even in persecution. You have to be ready. It's just, it comes with it. It comes with the territory. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? He says, so don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit put on my heart that that's for somebody here today, specifically with your family. I don't know if it's your mom or if it's a mom and it's your daughter. But it's like, don't lose your confidence. Keep sharing. Keep planting that seed. Keep being open about your faith. Keep being open about what you believe and the hope that you have in Jesus. Keep doing it. It will be richly rewarded, okay? Being made fun of comes with the territory sometimes. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who don't believe, it just doesn't make sense. We have to be okay looking foolish for our faith. We have to be okay with it. Um, Because it's not going to get any easier, you guys. The the horizon, it's not going to get any easier to share our faith um, the way things are going. What we know and what we stand for is too important to set aside for our own comfort. Okay? Every Easter and Christmas, I make goodies for neighbors. We don't know our neighbors very well, but I make some sort of cookies or something, and I put it in something cute from Target, and I put an invite to church. And then we just drop it off on the porches. I used to knock on the doors, but they don't answer the doors, even though I know they're there. And then I'll see it disappear, right? And I was doing that day before yesterday, and I'm dropping off these cookies with an invite to Easter services circle. This is the one we're going to. Hope to have you join us. And I had this thought, and I know it was the enemy or just my flesh that was like, what are you doing? You do this every time, and they don't come. They're probably thinking, hello, we know you're religious. We get it. We get, you know, you don't have to keep bringing us these ways to invite us to your church, Right? But then I feel like the Lord said, I was like in a field just planting seeds, just planting seeds, and that was my job. But for a minute, I was like, I must look, I must look so dumb. They're probably just like, really? That family just keeps sending us, giving us these things, inviting us to church. Well, yes, I'm going to just look dumb because one day they're going to say, we're going to be going through something or their kids are going to ask about something and they're going to go, you know, our neighbors go to Cornerstone. Let's do Easter this year. Let's go. Let's, let's, do, let's go for Easter or let's go for Christmas. My mom's in town or something. So anyhow, we have to be willing to have it be uncomfortable for us. Um, how many of you are single in here? And a lot of you are going to remember when you were single and you're like totally serious about Jesus, Right? And you meet a cute guy, and maybe you meet him for coffee or whatever. And 
second question's like, so do you love Jesus? Because like he's totally my number one, and if he's not your number one, then we're not going to be able to, this will not happen, you know? It's like the most important thing to you. You don't care if he doesn't like you. You don't care if you look stupid. Ladies, if that, you, that is not your second question, it should be in your top three, and if it's not, it should be, right? Don't mess with that stuff. You want a guy that loves God the most, but you don't care. You're just like, I love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, this can't happen. Because, and you don't, you don't care because you know how important it is. You put your faith out front. In chapter 6, the writer reminds the church of God's divine promise made to Abraham. And we talked about a little bit about this when we talked about Peter's storm. When Abraham was 99, God promised him he would give him more descendants than he could count. Well, Abraham didn't have any children. His wife was 90. Remember, we talked about how shriveled up and impossible it was for them to have children. But Abraham, after patiently waiting, obtained that promise. And even in their old age, they had a child named Isaac. The writer encourages the church to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. I've always thought of the birth of Isaac as fulfilling the promise. You're going to have descendants, and he had Isaac. But that wasn't really the fulfillment of the promise, right? That's not descendants that outnumber the sand. That's one. Isaac wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. The fulfillment of the promise was going to come through Isaac. That's why Abraham had so much faith when he brought Isaac up the hill, because he knew if Isaac was gone, those descendants wouldn't be. Isaac was just the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise. The promise of many heirs was in him. Don't underestimate what God has planned for you when you see just the beginning of his promise fulfilled. Don't underestimate what he can do or what he's about to do. The fulfillment for Abraham started with the birth of Isaac, but it ended with the multitude, right? The promise of salvation for the disciples started on Friday, but then they had a long, really hard Saturday before it was fulfilled on Sunday, right? The writer of Hebrews is saying, God was faithful to his promise to Abraham, and he's going to be faithful to you as well. So let's look at the text where we find our verse, Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the hope being talked about here is the Greek word elpis. And it means an ex- the expectation of good. This joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. You're expecting good. There's an expectance. There's an assurance. Good is on its way. Right? But peace or hope, has one other definition that I found interesting. The expectation of evil or fear. Does that sound weird to you guys? If you think about it, so often when we use the word hope in a sentence, we're actually expecting good not to happen. Oh man, I hope I don't have the flu. 
and you're like sweating, 103 fever. Your body, you can't roll your eyes because everything hurts. Oh, I hope I don't have the flu. You know you got the flu. But you're saying, I hope I don't have the flu, right? I hope there's not traffic, you say to your friend who made you 20 minutes late to get in the car and on the road. Well, I hope there's not traffic. You know there's traffic, you know. You kind of hope there's traffic for real because then your friend will feel bad for making you late. Um, I hope I passed that test usually means you're worried that you didn't pass the test. If you say, I hope I'm not, it's usually because you're afraid you are. The hope that is an anchor for our souls that's being talked about here isn't the, I hope Target's open, you know. I hope I don't have jury duty. It's not that hope. It's an expectant, knowing, assured hope in something good that has already been promised. That's what the hope is that's being talked about here. And we have this hope, this expectation of good, as an anchor for the soul. So what does an anchor do? Keeps you in one place. Right? Or what? Hold fast. Hold fast right? Yes. And it, it, you, you put down an anchor, keeps you from drifting away. Uh, when I grew up fishing, loved fishing, me and my sister. We'd go to Berryessa or Clear Lake, and I'm telling you, if we got our boat over like a school of crappie or bluegills, we'd just jig our little hearts out for like two hours and catch as many as we could. Who understood what I said there? Yes. <laughs> And we would just put one time, I think I remember, there wasn't a limit, and we caught like 23 or something, bluegill, and my dad could cook them up, grown up on a farm in Minnesota. Oh, so delicious. But anyway, you can bet we threw our anchor out. We wanted to stay there and keep going. So we put our anchor out. So I did a little anchor study. I found some interesting anchors that I'm going to talk to you about. A sea anchor we learned a little bit about with Paul. It's also called a drift anchor. It's used to stabilize a boat in bad weather. Do I have a picture of a sea anchor? If I don't, that's okay. I might not. No? No, that's not it. That's all right. I don't have one. It looks like a big stack, and it basically drags the boat. The water goes into it, and it drags the boat. It's used to stabilize a boat in bad weather. Um, doesn't tether to the bottom. It just increases the drag through the water and acts like a brake. It also, by the force of the water, has you point, it points you in the right direction that you need to be in when there's a storm. And I see this as the anchor that I want to throw out when I'm in danger of making big decisions without praying about it or without really thinking it through. It's like pumping the brakes and not getting carried away with my emotions, and it keeps me pointed in the right direction. Throw out the sea anchor. Then there's an anchor called a mud weight. And this mud weight is basically this big um, weight that's usually like cement or uh, iron or lead. And this is helpful when your, butt, when your boat is over um, mud or silt because it literally just sinks down into the mud deeper and deeper until the mud sort of covers it and then it's hard to get it out. Anybody ever step into mud before and you're like, you know, you can't, your shoe stays in? It's kind of like that. It sinks way down and then the weight is down in the mud and it keeps you from moving around. 
This anchor reminds me that sometimes we throw an anchor out in the wrong place. We throw it out in the wrong place. Like when we do get carried away by our emotions and we find ourselves stuck in the mud and muck of a bad relationship or a situation that's really unhealthy. We tend to throw an anchor out and stay in the mud because we're not sure what to do or how to get out of our situation. And sometimes, you know, you're like, oh, at least it's familiar. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. At least I know what's going to happen here. Sometimes being in something familiar feels better than cutting the anchor and moving on. But I'm going to tell you this morning, if you have a mud weight anchor that has you stationed in the mud, if you're in a relationship, it's different when you're married, but there's also certain things in married relationships that I've seen a lot of women stay decades with that should, probably shouldn't have. Um, if you're in a, there's a, a relationship or a living arrangement. Maybe you're living with your boyfriend and you're not married. There's something where you've gotten stuck and you know, I am not supposed to be here, but I put out an anchor because it's super comfortable and it's familiar, but I know I'm in the mud. Then I'm just going to tell you this morning, cut anchor and move on. Get out of the mud. Get to where God wants you to be. And you know who you are because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm totally in the mud. Okay, cut anchor, let God take you where he wants to take you. Familiar isn't always God's best for you. Sometimes it's just what you're okay to settle with because you're afraid of what God has for you. Lastly, we have the admiralty, the fisherman anchor. This is the one most of you are familiar with. It's been all over usually over Hobby Lobbies and TJ Maxx and everywhere until we go to look for a bunch of anchors to give you guys, and then there's no anchors. <laughs> there's been like a drought of anchors happening, right? When this anchor lands on the bottom, it usually falls with the arms this way, parallel to the seabed, and as it gets strained, it begins to turn, and the whole stock and this side digs down and holds firm. The stock even digs into the bottom, and an entire fluke will go down. It's a firm hold. And this is the anchor that I picture for our text. When that digs down into the seabed because it gets pulled up and down and down and down, that's a firm hold. This is what, the, this is what our hope looks like that anchors our soul like that giant anchor. So what is this hope that is an anchor that's being talked about? We still haven't talked about that. We know that it's hope. We know that it's an expectation of good. What is the hope? For the writer of Hebrews, this hope is the expectation of salvation. The expectation that the promise that we are saved is going to be fulfilled. Just like the promise of Abraham was fulfilled in the birth of Abraham's son, the promise of our salvation has been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of God's son. We can count on it. And that's how he's trying to encourage them. He's like, all these years you were promised a Messiah. You were promised a Savior. That promise has been fulfilled. And that's your hope. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved from the consequence of sin. 
which is death, separation from God, and hell. You don't hear hell talked about very much. My dad's like, that's why I became saved, you know, when he was a teenager, because they were like, don't, you don't want to go to hell. And he's like, I don't want to go to hell, but it's real. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved from that. We have this hope that no matter how messed up we are, no matter what people do to us, no matter our sin or our circumstances, there is someone and something bigger than what we have here. There's more at work than what we see. There's forgiveness. There's acceptance. There's relationship with God. Our forever is secure in him. So there's that text. So what can man do to me? Even if I plummet from the sky in a small airplane, my soul is going to be is, is secure. I'm going to go from life to life because my soul is secure. And I thought about it, this necklace that I'm wearing. It's, uh, my mom passed away a couple years ago, and um, I had a necklace made from one of the birthday cards she gave me. She was a huge card giver. And they, used, I, they took her writing out of the card, and it says, I love you so much. And on the back, it says, love mom. My mom always put quotes around mom. I have no, like, like mom, like she's not my mom. We always made fun of her. So it even has love mom. But I'm going to see my mom. My forever secure. Her forever was secure. I'm going to see my mom again. And it's going to be amazing, right? This is the hope. This is the expectation of good that is an anchor to steady our souls when we wait on God in present storms. I'm saved. Jesus came, and now I get to know that my eternity, that I, things are going to be okay, even if the worst happens, my soul is secure. So some of you might be thinking, okay, so the hope is my salvation. That's great. I'm super glad for that. But um, how does this hope help me when I'm losing my house? How does this hope of my salvation help me when my marriage is going like this right now or my child is sick or my mom is sick? How does that hope help me right now in what I'm going through? Well, let's continue on in the text. Verse 9, uh, no, 19 we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Your hope is anchored behind the curtain. And Jesus anchored it there. So let me tell you why that's so amazing. The curtain, also known as the veil, was in front of the throne of God. I have a picture of it. Or the inner sanctuary. So that large purple curtain back there, okay? It was an inner curtain that separated the sanctuary of God which was the, you've heard it, the holy of holies, the most holy place. It separated the, the sanctuary of God from the holy place, which was the rest of the tabernacle. 
The tabernacle was a traveling resting place for God while the Israelites moved through the desert. It had all sorts of rules to it, how many layers for the tents, etc. It was basically God's house, God's dwelling place among them, specifically in the holiest of holies place behind the curtain. Later, a temple was built, and within the holy place of the temple, there was an inner room called the Holy of Holies, again, the most holy place. They did the same thing, the same thing. That's where the throne of God was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was a room no ordinary person could enter. It was God's special dwelling place. Only he could be there. And there was a thick curtain, or the veil, that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. There we go. It was made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. There were figures of cherubim or angels embroidered onto it. That's the curtain that's being talked about in Hebrews, okay, where it's anchored behind the curtain, within the curtain. The word veil in Hebrew means a screen, a divider, or a separator that hides. The veil was shielding a holy God from a sinful man. That was the whole purpose of that curtain. Whoever entered into the Holy of Holies was entering the very presence of God. That's where God sat. That's where God was. That was his throne room, was behind that curtain. Anyone except the high priest who entered the Holy of Holies would die on the spot. Because God's so holy and man was so sinful. Even the high priest, God's chosen mediator with his people, could only pass through the veil and enter enter the sacred dwelling once a year on a certain day called the Day of Atonement. One high priest was allowed to go in and sprinkle blood to atone for the sins of Israel. Only once a year was he allowed to go in. God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. And Habakkuk says he could tolerate no sin. He could tolerate no sin. So the veil was like this safety barrier to make sure that man couldn't sort of carelessly or irreverently fall into God's presence. Because he would die, and God didn't want that. So he's like, put a big curtain there, because I don't want anybody coming in that, you know, shouldn't be there. That's why on the cross, when Jesus was covered in our sin, God looked away. Why have you forsaken me? Because God couldn't even look at his son, because the sin was too great, and God's holiness could not be in presence with it. That's what Jesus did for us. He put himself in a position where his own father could not look at him because of the sin covering him. Even as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to make meticulous preparations. He had to wash a certain way. He had special clothing to put on. He had to burn incense in front of his face to cover his eyes from a direct view of God because the holiness 
He was too holy. And he had to bring blood with him to make atonement for sins. It said that they would have bells sewn into the hem of the garment that they wore, the tunic. They would have small bells, and they'd have a rope tied around one of their ankles, the high priest would. So that when the high priest shuffled in, probably full of fear and trepidation, he had dealt with his sin as best he could. He had repented. He was ready to make atonement for the sins of Israel. But if he shuffled in and he had unrepentant sin, he would die. So they would listen for the bells to stop ringing. So if they heard him walking around, they knew that he was still alive. But if the bells stopped and they heard a kathunk, they couldn't run in and get him because then they would all die, right? They would just be a big stack of bodies. So they would pull him out by the rope around his ankle. That's how holy God was, you guys. That's how holy God is. They couldn't be in his presence, okay? They couldn't be in his presence. No one was allowed in God's holy presence to commune with him, to talk with him, to sit with him, be held by him. He was a far-off God. The presence of God remained shielded from man behind a thick curtain during the history of Israel. But Jesus' death and resurrection changed all of that. Changed all of it. When he died, the curtain in the Jerusalem temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. That curtain was about 60 feet high and 30 feet wide and four inches thick. And it was torn from the top down, which means who tore the, who tore the curtain? God supernaturally ripped that curtain. This was something God initiated, you guys. This was something he did. He was desperate for his children. He was desperate to have them in his presence. He'd been behind the curtain too long. He didn't want to just see one once a year. He wanted everyone to have access to him. And in his desperation, he did the one thing he could do, which was sacrifice his son, let his son take on the sins once and for all, to be the high priest once and for all, to, to bring the blood sacrifice once and for all. And the minute that was done, he was like, come, ripped open the curtain. Just come, come be in my presence. You guys, that's how much he loves us. He was so desperate to be with us that everything that we're celebrating this weekend is because he wanted to rip that veil apart and allow access into the holiest place to have access to him. So God's presence was then and now and forever accessible to all. Jesus entered into the holiest place as the final high priest to make atonement for the sins of the entire world. That event is our good news. That event is our hope. In saving us, 
Jesus opened up the way for us to be with God. And so your life circumstances now, your life circumstances now, have a hope in the fact that you can just sit with Jesus. And you can sit with God. And you can ask him for his presence. You can ask him to move mountains. You can ask him to bring healing. You can talk to him. You can feel him by his spirit. We could not get to God by being good enough. We could not get to God by fulfilling rituals or doing works. It was only through what Jesus did for us in paying our debt, the debt that we owe. Jesus' death atoned for our sins and made us right before God. When he cried out, it is finished on the cross, he was proclaiming that God's redemptive plan was now complete. God had now restored relationship with his people. The age of animal offerings was over. The ultimate offering had been sacrificed. So now we can boldly enter into God's presence. We can boldly go into the holiest of holies. We can boldly go into his throne room, into his very inner sanctuary, behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, entered on our behalf. Now we can go in. That, that mind-blowing to the people of Israel that they could all just go in to God's presence. Because for so long, they, were not, they could not go in there. I think about like Prince William, his little boy and little girl, little, little ones, you know, and Queen Elizabeth and how they don't have to go through a bunch of stuff to see their, what is it, their great-grandma? They can just run up to her. To her, she's just great-grandma. She can be in her throne room, and they can run in there and jump up on her lap because they're family. They have access to her that we don't have. Right? Jesus secured the hope of my salvation for me. And this hope is anchored behind the veil in the very presence of God. Jesus dragged it in there and dropped it, and our souls are tethered to it. So no matter what storms you're facing right now, in family, in work, in health, spiritually, whether it be a blessing or a trial, when the waves get too high to see the horizon, remember that Jesus planted the anchor for your soul right in God's presence. So that in every storm, in every trying time, your soul would be tethered to the hope that God has saved you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be near you. He wants you in his presence. He's given you his spirit. And you can confidently approach him with your heart and your needs, all of it. He paid a great price to give you access to him. So make sure you go to him, right? Jesus went ahead of us and dropped anchor and said, you never have to lose hope again. You never have to lose hope again. Because now you have a personal relationship with my Father. No matter the storm, you're not alone. Jesus will not let you drown. You belong to the God who made the seas, right? He's the God of second chances, and he's the God that did whatever it took to rip down that veil of separation 
so he could have access to your life, access to your heart, access to you. So be encouraged this morning and this Easter weekend. I've made up a sheet that someone's going to pass out to you guys. It's not to do right now. It's to do, let's see, can somebody, is Heather still in here? Uh, there's a stack of sheets that's going to get passed out. Who can help me pass out sheets? Anyone? Will you? Thank you, Angelina. Yeah, there, it says directed quiet time on it. This is to do this weekend sometime. This is for you to take and it just take it into quiet time and it, it just walks you through just spending some one-on-one time with God, okay, that is based on what we've learned this morning. So those are going to get passed out right now. And then uh, there's discussion questions on your handout, and you guys can have some discussion time. And then while those are being passed out, um, I'm going to pray, okay? God, you get so personal and kind and tender when I imagine you tearing that veil open out of desperation like a father just desperate to see his daughter that has, he's been separated from her for too long and he rips it open to grab her. Thank you, God, for doing what you had to do for us, for our, us little humans. Thank you for sending Jesus and for this redemptive plan so that we can come into your throne room without fear. We can even come in covered in sin, and you will still accept us in your presence and help to clean us off, and you forgive us, and you cover us, and send us back out, and are always there waiting for us. And thank you, Jesus, for your part in this amazing plan for purchasing hope for us, for purchasing access to God for us, because it was far too steep a price to pay, but you paid it. Thank you for that. God, I pray that the hope that comes from being in your presence just infuses the women here this morning. Hope that you are with them. Hope that you have plans for them. Hope that you have purpose. Hope that you are real and powerful and a healer and a deliverer and a loving father and a restorer and a redeemer. I pray that in situations that they've looked at that seemed bleak, that you would just stamp hope on it. You are good, God. And I'm so glad that I don't have to wait outside a temple while one person goes in and gets to see you. But I get to go in and see you whenever I want. Thank you for that amazing gift. Help us to never take it for granted. Teach us how to love you better, be with you better, practice your presence better, know your word better, because you paid a lot for the right for us to do that. I just bless each and every woman here this morning. I pray that the, the, the rejoicing and hope of Easter would cover them and their families. In Jesus' name, amen.